Amen. You can be seated. Thank you guys so much for coming out. It's a pleasure to see everybody. Uh, we're studying Mark. Uh, we have been studying that for over a year, and I see no end in sight. I don't know when we'll be finished with this. For all you ADD people, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're just going to stick with it till we get done. Uh, but I hope that it's uh, blessing you. I know it's been good for me. Today, I want to talk to you about the greatest thing you can do. The greatest thing you can do. If you Google search this question, how do you live your best life, you will receive 5.5 billion Google results, 5.5 billion. If you look for a book on the topic, there are 30,000 books written to try and answer that question. What is the most important thing you can do? Truth of the matter is, they can't all be right. Um, Some of them are going to be terrible advice. And your job as a human being is to sort through all of the the sources, figure out which one's credible, And then you research it, you study it, you apply it, and you look for results in your life. And so that's the challenge of humanity. We've got to chart a course, and we're all going in some direction, and and some sort of source, some sort of um, information is going to guide every decision that you make. And so we've got to figure out what's the best source. Now, the challenge is when you find the wrong source and you apply the wrong source. How many of you have taken some bad advice? Right there, right there. It's, it's easy to do, you know, and there are some sources out there you think they're pretty credible and trustworthy, and then they lead you down the wrong path. When I was in high school, uh, the teachers, the guidance counselors, a lot of parents, they said to us, our generation, what you need to do is go to college, and you need to find something you're passionate about, and you need to get a degree in it so that you can get a real job, and you don't have to grow up and be a plumber. That's what they would say. You don't want to grow up and be a plumber, and so that's what a lot of people did. My age, they went to college. And they got a degree in underwater basket weaving, and they got about $50,000 in debt, and then they couldn't find a job. Surprising. No underwater basket weaving jobs here in Kentucky. And so they have to work in a cubicle in a dead-end job that they hate. And it's absolutely miserable, and they're thinking, what went wrong? All the while, the guys that got a GED and went and became plumbers are making $100,000 a year, right? It was was not... uh, wise, that counsel, and yet many of us, we bought into it. And as a result, people are having to deal with those choices the rest of their life. And so it's it's so important, the point is so important that we find a credible source. Uh, What's the the proper way to live your life? What's the best way to live your life? And and I want to show you today what's the most important thing you you can do and help you to chart the right course so that you don't end up in a place that you don't want to be. Let's all stand together. Mark chapter 12. Beginning in verse 28, one of the scribes approached. When he heard them debating and saw that Jesus answered them well, he asked them, which command is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Then the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one. And there is no one else except him. And to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to question him any longer. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each and every one of my friends that have gathered here today. Thank you for everybody that's watching online. I pray a blessing on each and every one. Father, we all come here and we're carrying different burdens, Lord. Uh, We come here from different places, from different perspectives. Uh, Lord, we have all taken different types of advice and counsel and how to navigate this world, some of it good and and a lot of it bad. And so, Lord, I pray today 
that we'll have eyes that are open, we'll have ears that are receptive, we'll have a heart that's soft to your message, Lord. I pray that we can hear clearly from you the things in our life that we need to adjust, the things in our life that we need to get rid of, the things in our life, Lord, that we need to surrender to you so that we can live our best life, so that we can live the life that you destined us for, so that we can give you glory, Lord, and we can make a positive difference in this world. Help us today, Lord. Come and visit with us. I pray you'll speak through me. I'm just a sinner. I'm saved by your grace alone, by faith alone. It's not because I've done anything good. It's not because I'm special in any way. I'm no better than any person that's in this room. And so, Lord, they don't need anything from me. They want something from you. Please, Lord, speak through me today. As you stand there with your eyes closed, I'd ask that you'd say a prayer for the people around you and the people that are watching online. Take a second and pray for Dave. Dave's not feeling well. Lift him up. Ask for healing in his body. We're also today going to lift up Michael Long. Lift him up by name. He's, he's got some bad news, and he needs Lord to heal him. So pray for him. And I ask that you'll pray for Lola this morning. Lola's not feeling well, and I, pray you'll, you'll, I ask you'll pray for her. Take a second and pray for yourself. Father, speak to us. We're ready to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Mark chapter 12, verse 28, one of the scribes, a scribe is a lawyer. They're experts in the law. Uh, first five books of the Bible, they've got memorized. They're masters. They've got a lot of the Old Testament memorized and mastered. And their job, kind of their task in this world, uh, is to debate, study, and debate what's in the law. Figure out what's important, what's not important, how to interpret it. They've spent their whole life dedicated to that, that job. And so one of those people, uh, they're in Jerusalem. Uh, those, were, those were where the best scribes lived. And one of them probably, chances are, the most uh, intelligent, the most well-spoken has come to ask Jesus a question. Now, we're in what we call the Entrapment Trilogy. Some of the best and brightest, most powerful people in Jerusalem, in the Jewish culture, they've come to Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words because they don't like Jesus. They don't like what Jesus stands for. So they're trying to shut him down every way they can, and they keep asking him loaded questions. So this man comes, and he asks Jesus a very straightforward question. It's not a complicated question at all. He says, what is the most important commandment of all? Now, this is something that the scribes had been debating for centuries. And uh, they, they debated this because there were 613 laws that Jewish people recognized. And they tried to follow all these laws. But that's kind of like reading through 5.5 billion results on Google, trying to figure out what's the best way to live your life. It's kind of like trying to read 30,000 books and figuring out what's the best way to live your life. That's a whole lot to keep track of. And not many of us are good at that, that kind of thing, right? So instead of them trying to keep track of all 613, they did their best. They thought, you know, we really need to figure out of all these commandments, which ones are the most important. So we can focus on those. And if we focus on those, surely we'll be on the right track and God will give us credit for the rest of them. So they had debated it. And a few centuries before this, they had come to an agreement. There's one commandment that sticks out far and above the rest. And they called it uh, something they recited every day called the Shema. I'll explain to you why they call it the Shema in a minute. But they would recite this about Jesus' day, morning and night. They would recite uh, what, what Jesus is about to answer. And so they asked Jesus this question that is, they've got a consensus answer. This is a Sunday school answer that you know, any little Jewish boy, Jewish girl could easily answer this question, what's the most important commandment? They all know the answer to that. But they're asking Jesus this question because they think that Jesus has come to set up a totally new religion. 
And uh, the reason they think that is because three years ago, Jesus comes into the temple, their most sacred place, and he starts turning over tables and kicking people out. And then from that point on, it's like he's got an attack, full frontal attack, assault on everything, Jewish rituals, religion, tradition. He just like, he doesn't wash his hands ceremonially like they want him to. He doesn't fast like they want him to. He eats with sinners and tax collectors. They don't like that. He does things in the temple that they don't like. Uh, And so they think that Jesus has come to start a new religion, and they're going to ask him this question because it's like, well, we all agree on this. What do you think about it? And they're expecting Jesus to put his foot in his mouth and say something that's incriminating. That way, all the other Jewish people who all agree on this are going to be like, well, Jesus is a heretic. He's a blasphemer. We don't need to trust him. And the population at large who loves Jesus now, they're turning their back on Jesus, and then the Jewish leaders can arrest Jesus and have him thrown in jail or worse yet, killed. And that's their goal. So he asked him a question, what's the most important command? Jesus answered, verse 29, the most important is, pause. Jesus does something here that's so important. Christians overlook this and we get this mistaken. Jesus confirms here that there is a hierarchy of values. In other words, there are some commandments that are greater than others. And conversely, the opposite of that, there are some sins that are worse than others. How many of you grow up Um, hearing taught that all sins are equal. A sin is a sin, all sins are equal. That's not true. That's not true. It's not true in your life, right? It's not true in your life because if you've got a buddy and he steals a quarter from your ashtray, not a big deal. If he takes $100 from your wallet without asking you, you're going to have to have a conversation. If he takes your wife out on a date, you really got a problem, right? Not all sins are equal. It's not true in the church that all sins are equal. There are some, some things that you do, you post on Facebook, clothes that you wear that have your preacher scratching his head. You know, I'm not, but we don't have a talk about it. There are certain things that some of you do. It's going to make me have to give you a call and call you to my office on Broadway Cafe and have an awkward conversation. And that, sometimes I have to do that. And there are some things that people do that get them kicked out of the church altogether because not all sins are created equal. Somebody came to me recently and they were, they were um, disgruntled with some of my messages. And they said, you know, uh, in Leviticus 19, there's one sin in Leviticus 19 that you always talk about. You always harp on it, and you don't, you don't talk about any of the other ones. And what this person was referring to is that I talk about cultural issues. And I, I talk about cultural issues because we're all confronted with them every day. And I believe with all my heart that Jesus and the Bible has something to say about the life that we're living in 2022. Don't you agree with that? And so I got to talk about what's going on culturally. One of the most alarming things and most influential things that's going on culturally right now is sexual deviancy and gender confusion. And so I have to talk about that. And so what this man is referring to, he's saying, you, that's all you, you, you harp on that. You talk about that all the time, but you don't talk about at all Leviticus 19. It, has, it says that's a sin, but it also says it's a sin to wear clothing made of two different types of fabric. You never talk about that. And I'm like, okay, buddy, let me tell you why I never talk about that. If you were living in Leviticus 19 days and you wore clothing made of two different types of fabric, what would happen to you is you would be sent home. You wouldn't be allowed to go in the temple. That's what would happen, which is bad. But if you practice sexual deviancy and gender confusion, fire from heaven would rain down and destroy your whole city. Not all sins are created equal, right? Okay, so that's what Jesus affirms here. And he says, In the same way, not all sins are created equal. Not all virtuous behavior is created equal. Some is more powerful, important, meaningful. And so he says, okay, this is the most important one. Listen, 
That word listen in Hebrew is the Shema. It's Shema. And this is what the Jewish boys and girls, moms and dads, they would recite this every single day. They would recite this. Uh, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Uh, Moses gives uh, his people this commandment, and they recited it every day. Now, this shows that Jesus didn't come to do away with everything God initiated in the Old Testament. God had not abandoned his plan, his purpose, his prescriptions. He had not changed his mind or his character. The same God that we find in the Old Testament is the same God we find in the New Testament. What God was up to in the Old Testament, he's also up to in the New Testament. Jesus has come to fulfill the law of Moses. Everything God was doing in the Old Testament, everything God was bringing out in all of the 613 commandments is manifested, lived out, perfectly displayed in Christ. And so he says, listen, the Lord our God is one. And so Moses uttered these words, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you can do your homework, read it later. He uttered these words during a very important transitionary period for the people of God. They uh, were just moving out of slavery in Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God delivered them through a series of plagues. They walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. They ventured through the wilderness, and now they're on the edge of the promised land. They had all sorts of conversations up to that point, and they talked about a whole lot of stuff. And Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, he is synthesizing, he's condensing, he is summarizing all of the things that they've talked to up to this point. And he wants them, he wants them to know what's really, what, what it all amounts to, what's really, really important. Now, God's plan and purpose for this people is that this chosen group of people, the Israelites, they would be his representatives to the rest of the world and that they would uh, accurately model God's plan, his purpose, his kingdom, his character for the rest of the world so that the rest of the world would see the Israelites and say, man, they live an amazing life. They have an awesome community. They have so much meaning and hope and joy and peace and love. I would love to be part of a community like that. And so they would want to be part of this kingdom and they would want to surrender to this king. How do we have that type of life Well, we have this type of life because we surrender to Yahweh as our God and our king. And so that was God's plan. And so the the biggest uh, challenge to God fulfilling that plan and purpose in his people is if the people, his his chosen people, don't look like God and they don't uh, don't, uh, display God's character in his kingdom. Instead, they just follow the patterns of the rest of the world. That's what would disrupt God's plan. If, if instead of them looking like God and living out God's kingdom, they just look like the rest of the world. And so the biggest stumbling block for God's people is the worship of false gods because that, that takes them all off course. Okay, so in, uh, in Egypt, the, the Egyptians worshiped hundreds of gods and the Israelites had just left from Egypt. They were there for 400 years and now they're lit, moving into the land of Canaan there in uh, Canaan, the Canaanites worshiped all sorts of different gods. And so this may surprise you, but even in our day, most people worship multiple gods. Did you know that? Most people in our day worship multiple gods. Now, they don't call them gods, but you got to understand what is a god. A god is the thing that you set as the greatest good, the thing that you name as the highest ambition. It's the thing that you serve in your life. That's what a god is. And so people in our day we're, we're so many people, your neighbors, your coworkers, friends, family, people you know, uh, most people are polytheistic in that they worship the God of pleasure, the God of purpose or, or, or possession, the God of power, the God of prestige. And their life t- lifestyle is dictated 
by serving their fleshly desires or their greed for more or their desperation for control or their need for approval and attention. And they believe if I can just religiously serve this God, this thing that I've, I've set up as the highest ambition, if I can just be faithful to that and diligent to it, then this God will help me to arrive at this heavenly place that my soul is longing for. And that's why you hear people say, if I can just graduate from high school, if I could just graduate from college, if I could just get that job, if I could just get that promotion, if I could just retire until they've set their career as their God, it's their highest ambition. Or you hear people say, if I could just have a six-pack, a six-pack of abs or a six-pack of beer, doesn't matter, one or the other, something to make me feel good about myself, if I could just, if I could just have that, if I could just get more uh, YouTube subscribers, if I get more followers on Instagram, if, if people thought I was more special than, than what I feel right now, and so they've set these things up as their highest ambition, as the greatest good. If I can just live in that house or drive that car or go on that vacation, then I would be happy. Haven't you heard people say that? And we so, uh, Americans and Western civilization, we worship the God of happiness that manifests itself in all sorts of different ways, in money or popularity or power or pleasure. And if I could just, and so everybody serves. They, they live their life in service to that ambition. It's their God. And most people are bouncing back and forth between this God and that God. And that's why you talk to one person and they're like, they're gung-ho about this. You know, I'm, I'm going to start a business and I'm going to make a million dollars or, you know, I'm, I'm into health right now. And they're bouncing from this to this to this. Why? Because they're, they're searching for the God that's actually going to satisfy their soul. And they keep bouncing around from this God to that God, and they're living a chaotic life because none of their gods are satisfying what their soul is really craving. And so, so many people are polytheistic, but God, in his grace and his mercy and his love, he sets himself up against all the gods that we worship. He picks a fight with every single one of our idols. That's what Jesus is doing. When he steps on the scene three years before this, and he goes in the temple, and he starts picking a fight on all the religious traditions of the Jewish people, and he starts turning over tables in the temple, and he's not washing his hands the way he wants, and it seems like every time Jesus goes to another city or another thing, and he's encountering these religious elites and these hypocrites, he's challenging every one of their gods, because they had stopped worshiping the God of the Bible in person. Instead, they started worshiping their religious traditions and their rituals and all of their uh, cultural things instead of actually worshiping God. And so Jesus sets himself up against it. In the same way, Moses is delivering the Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. In Egypt, they worshiped hundreds of gods. And so what does God do in delivering the Egyptians? God he picks a fight with every single one of the Egyptian gods. You see, every one of the plagues, he, God delivers the Egyptians through a series of 10 plagues. You remember this story, right? Every single one of the plagues corresponds to one of the most prominent Egyptian gods. So I'll just tell you the last three. The, the eighth plague was the plague of locusts. Locusts are bugs that come in and they devour everything that's green. And so one of the major Egyptian gods was a god named Keper. It was the god of grain. And they would worship this God to make sure that they had all the food that they, could, they needed to eat and all the, the green stuff that their livestock needed. And so what God does is he goes in and he says, okay, this is your God. Well, I'm, gonna send, I'm just going to send bugs. And bugs are going to destroy your God. It's going to show you your God is powerless against me. Uh, the, the second most influential God in Egyptian culture was Ra, the sun God. And so the ninth plague, you'll remember this. What was the ninth plague? It was the plague of darkness. 
And so what does God do? He says, okay, you think Ra is powerful? Well, I'm going I'm to block the sun for three days just to show you that the God of Israel is the most powerful God and to put those gods in their place. The final God that, that um, the Lord sets himself up against is uh, the Egyptians worshiped their pharaohs as God. And so what's the final plague? It's the plague of the firstborn son, the death of the firstborn son. And so God talks about it. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, he's explaining to Moses what this plague is going to look like. I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both people and animals. I am the Lord, and I will execute judgments against all the what? I will execute judgment against all the what? Gods, there we go. I need to make sure you guys are tracking with me. This is important stuff. So God, he's picking a fight. He's saying, okay, just so you know, don't worship the pharaohs. They got no power. I'm going to show you how powerful I am. I'm going to take out all, everything that Pharaoh holds dear. Exodus chapter 18, verse 10 and 11. This is after they're delivered from Egypt. Jethro is looking back. Moses' father-in-law, he's celebrating what God has done. Look at this. Blessed be the Lord who rescued you from the power of Egypt and from the power of Pharaoh. He has rescued the people from under the power of Egypt. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the what? All the gods, all the gods, because he did wonders in the Egyptians when the Egyptians acted arrogantly against Israel. You see, in the ancient world, in the ancient world, they had all sorts of needs that they needed to be met. They had to grow grain. And in order to have grain, they had to have rain, and they had to have the sun, and they had to have uh, the bugs stay away. And so they worshiped these gods that corresponded to all these things that they needed. And then it was believed in the ancient world that if your nation prospered, that meant that you were worshiping the right gods. And so what God does is he sets himself up against all these false things that they are, they're pursuing, all these false things they're running against. And he's saying to all the world, I am the greatest God. There is none like me. And so don't, don't chase after all these false gods. Don't have your allegiance be divided. Don't allow your mind to be confused. Worship the one true God, the God who is over all the other gods. And so it starts with, if you're going to try and figure out what's the most important thing to do, it starts with answering who's the most important person. What's the most important thing? It starts with answering the question, who is really God? What is my highest ambition? you got to make sure that the thing that you've set your sights on, the thing that you've called the greatest good, is actually the thing that is the greatest good. So Jesus continues. He says, the Lord your God is one. So verse 30, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now, here's another thing that a lot of Christians, we get wrong. Whenever we think of love, we think about warm and fuzzy feelings. But when the Bible, it talks about love, especially in regards to a command, whenever the Bible's talking about love, it's not talking about a feeling, it's talking about an act of the will. It's talking about a decision that you make and behavior that you carry out in conjunction with that decision. The truth of the matter is, and I'm not gonna spend much time on this, but God doesn't always feel love for you because sometimes you act like an idiot, right? And the Bible talks about how God gets angry and God gets jealous, and God, God has different types of feelings towards you, but this is a beautiful thing, and I think this is more powerful than God always feeling love for you. God makes a choice to always act and behave lovingly towards you, even when he doesn't feel it, and he is asking you to do the thing, same thing with him. Now, see, this is what we do. Every Sunday, we come, and we worship, 
It's how we start our service. There's a, the, the first prayer that we pray is a call to worship. It's to say, okay, all the distractions we're setting aside, now we're going to focus on the one who is the highest good. And we're going to worship him because everything good in our life, it comes from him. And so this is what I do. I don't always feel it. I don't always feel it. And I'll come up here, and I'm singing the songs, and I know God is worthy of every song that I'm singing. But I don't always feel it. Like today, I'm exhausted. My wife worked me like a borrowed mule yesterday. I'm exhausted. And sometimes I'm distracted. Sometimes I'm not sure exactly. It's like there's a part of the sermon. I'm still trying to wrestle it out and figure out how I'm going to say it. Because if I say it wrong, I'll get in trouble. And I don't want to get in trouble. And so I'm over here and I'm singing the songs, but my mind is on what I'm about to say. And sometimes I'm starving and I'm thinking about what I'm going to eat for lunch. How many of you, you get there? And so I don't always feel it, but this is what I do. I lift my hands up and worship. Not because I feel it, but because the Bible calls me to that. It says, men, lift up holy hands and praise. And so this is what I do. Not as a feeling, as an act of the will. I make a decision. God deserves for me to raise my hands and worship. And so I'm going to make the decision to raise my hands and worship and give him what he deserves. And here's the truth of the matter. Oftentimes, my feelings will follow my behaviors. And so I don't feel it. I come in. I don't feel it. But then I put my hands up just as an act of obedience. I don't feel it. But just put my hands. And then all of a sudden, I start to feel it. Then all of a sudden, the connection starts. So this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, make the decision to love God. Make the decision to behave in a loving way towards God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength, with all of your being, all of your identity, all of your thoughts, all of your energy, all of your possession, all of your person, all of your politics, all of your possession, all of your life, all of your desire, all of your decisions, all of your efforts all of your screen time, all of your credit, all of your fingers and toes, all of your wardrobe, all of your words, all of your schoolwork, all of your vacation, all of your waking, all of your sleeping, all of your texting, all of your emailing, all of your Netflix watching, all of it. Did I leave anything out? If I did, God wants that too. He wants that too. Why does God demand so much? Don't miss this. Because there is only one God. Only he is all wise. Only he is all powerful. Only he is all good. Only he can answer your prayers. Only he can save your soul. Only he can secure your eternity. Only he can sustain your life. Only he is worthy of all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. God commands that you love him more than anything else because there is nothing else that is worthy of that. Because everything else makes a terrible God. Let that land on you. All the things that you push God aside for in order to serve makes a terrible God. All the things that you wake up on Sunday morning and say, you know, I got a ball tournament and need to get my kids to. I got a chore that needs to get done. I've got X, Y, and Z. All those things that you wake up in the morning, you don't, you don't make time for devotion or prayer. It's like, I got to get, I got to answer these emails. All those things you've set up as the most important thing. Listen to me. 
God doesn't want you worshiping it because those things make a terrible God. Locusts will come in and eat your crops. The clouds will come in and block the sun. A a plague will come through and destroy your health. Inflation will come through and take away all your money. Amen? And these are things. We've set it up. These are, the, these are our gods. These are the things we've set up. They're, they're the most important things. And God's saying, you serve that. You make that the goal, the ambition of your life. You set that thing up as the most important thing. You are going to be sorely disappointed. That thing can't serve you. You're serving it, and it's giving you nothing in return. There's only one. Revelation chapter 5 records the culmination of human history. And the imagery it uses is there's a scroll that's rolled up, and it's sealed with seven seals. And this scroll contains the will, the the living will of God. And, and, And it explains how God is going to, he's going to carry out his plan and purpose to perfection. He's going to set everything right, as it should be, and nothing could be better. It's the life that you wish that you could see, but you never dreamed was possible. It's everything that you've hoped for. It's everything, you know, those 5.5 billion Google research results? It's everything that those results are, are, are striving for. It's, it's what they exist for. It's what they're trying to accomplish, but they never can. And so in Revelation chapter 5, what we see is there's a witness. And he sees the scroll, but he's filled with tears because there's nobody that's worthy to open the scroll. He read all 30,000 books. He looked everywhere he could look, but nobody, nobody could give him the answers. Nobody could fix the problems. Nobody could make things right. There was no prince or princess. There was no king or queen. There was no scholar or scientist. There was no banker or inventor. There was no celebrity or guru. No one was worthy to open the scroll. No one was able to usher in the heavenly kingdom that our soul is longing for. Revelation chapter 5, verse 4. Let's pick it up there. The witness says, I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. My, my prayers are going unanswered. All the things that I hope for, all the things that I wish for, all the things that I think are possible, but I just can't see how it's going to happen. There's no hope. Nobody there to open it. Verse 5, then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. He walked on the water. He calmed the sea. He fed the multitude. He cast out the demons. He healed every disease. He brought the dead man back to life. He conquered death and the grave. He tied up the strong man, Satan, and plundered all of his possessions. He established an unshakable kingdom, and he ascended to the highest heaven. Jesus Christ did what no one else could do. Amen. No one else could unlock the mystery of life. No one else can institute that heavenly paradise that our soul longs for, but he is able. Look at verse 8. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a heart and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Man, that's powerful. Friends, your prayers are being stored in a golden bowl at the feet of God. And there's an aroma, even now, 
Even now, there's an aroma going into the nostrils of God. Your prayers are having an effect. And one day, one day, he will answer everything that you long for. He's not going to answer your prayers the way you want them to be answered. He's going to answer the prayers the way they need to be answered. Verse 9, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing because he alone is worthy to open the scroll. He alone is worthy of all of your praise and he alone is worthy of all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. So that's why Jesus says the absolute most important thing you can do in this life is to love God with all of you because there's nobody else that can do for you what God can do for you. There is no one else who is worthy of all that you have to offer this world. Seek first, Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Verse 31, the second is, Jesus says, now remember the scribe, he only asked for one. He said, what is the most important commandment? But Jesus is a preacher, and you can't shut us up, okay? You're asked for one point. We're going to give you three points in a poem. That's what we're going to do. And so Jesus says the second one is, now other translation, other uh, passage, parallel passage says the second one is like it. Uh, Jesus says that you can't do the first one without also doing the second one. They're connected. Jesus says it, uh, John says it is impossible to love God and hate your brother. The second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other command greater than these. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, who's the author of this command? I'm I'm waiting on you guys. Who's the author of this command? God, right? God is the author of this command. Who gets to define what love is? It's the the same answer of the last question I asked. Who gets to define what love is? God. God. Is not God the highest expression of good and mercy and love, right? Do you think that you understand love better than God? Who are we to call good what God has called evil? Who are we to redefine institutions that God himself ordained? Who are we to say God's dealings with sin are unloving? Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. You know that. It doesn't say, do unto others as whatever affirms them. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, do unto others whatever makes them feel good about themselves. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say, do unto others whatever they want you to do for them. It doesn't say that. Do you know any parents that give their kids whatever they want? Do you know any parents like that? Are they good parents? <laughs> I don't think so. They're not loving parents. They're probably lazy parents. They just don't want to deal with their kids. And so to get them shut up, they just give them what they want. That's not loving. That's cruel. Jesus says, 
work for the best interest of others. That's a way to think about it. Serve them. Consider their needs before your own. Go out of your way for them. Give them the shirt off your back. When you can, turn the other cheek. When you can, go the extra mile. Help them carry their burdens. Rejoice with them. Mourn with them. Encourage them. Galatians chapter 6, this is one we don't do very well. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit. We're not very good at that one, are we? I want you to imagine for a second that uh, we discovered that Diet Pepsi had small traces of poison, which it may, I don't know. Let's just imagine it does. It has a little bit of poison in it, and that poison will turn your insides to mush. And let's just imagine that I am addicted to Diet Pepsi, okay, which I'm not. It's absolutely disgusting. I don't know why anybody drinks it. If I go into a restaurant and they have Diet Pepsi, I'm like, can I have a diet? And they're like, Diet Pepsi, all right? And I'm like, no, it's not all right. Bring me a water, okay? So let's just imagine, let's just imagine Diet Pepsi's small traces of poison, and I'm addicted to it. I would want you to do everything within your power to take that Diet Pepsi out of my hand. That's what I would want you to do. Regardless of what my mouth is saying, if you're working in my best interest, you're going to do everything in your power to pry that disgusting drink out of my hands. Even if I said, but I was born this way. I was born to ingest disgusting soft drinks. Even if I were to say, I can't help but what I love. I can't help it. I love what I love. Even if I were to say, it isn't hurting anyone but me. Live and let live. Even if I were to say, everyone is doing it. It's not that big a deal. Don't be such a legalist. Don't be such a stick in the mud. Even if I were to say, your prejudice against Diet Pepsi is bigoted and intolerant. Even if I were to say that. Even if I were to say, your words are triggering to me. No matter what I'd say, the most loving thing that you could do for me, knowing the truth about this Diet Pepsi, is to pry it from my hands and hide it from me and get on me every time you see me drinking it because it is killing me, right? That makes sense. The Bible says the wages of sin is what? The Bible says the wages of sin is what? It's death. It's death. It's death. So this is what we got to do. We got to work for the best interest of our neighbor. Even, even when to them it feels like you are doing them harm. You see, how do we define what is good? God defines what is good. How do we define what is loving? God defines what is loving. Who is your neighbor? Yep, even that guy. You know, that person that gets on your nerves at work and you can't even stand the sight of them. Their breast smells and they've all got, all got eye boogers and their hair sticking up and they're just, just like, man, you're on my nerves. Everything about you, even that person the person that cuts you off on the bypass and then drives like two miles an hour, even that person, love your neighbor as yourself. Work for their best interest. Jesus said, that is the most important thing you can do, to love God and love people. Verse 32, then the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have correctly said that he is one. There is no one else except him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is the last of the entrapment trilogy, the last time that one of these religious leaders is going to try and 
trap Jesus in his words. And he ends by agreeing with Jesus, which is remarkable. Like after Jesus's perfect response, this man can do nothing but agree with him. He even adds to what Jesus says. And he says that loving God and loving people is far more important than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, which is really saying something because scribes live for the burnt offerings and sacrifices. They live for it. They live for it. They were so like keyed in to all the little details of it. They just geeked out on it. They're one of those people that's like, they're telling you all the details. And you're like, this is all over my head. And I'm so bored just standing here listening. That's, they were that type of person. They loved it. And this man's saying, the most important thing that you can do is so much more important than sacrifices and rituals is to love God. Because he recognizes something many of us have forgotten. It's all about love. I've been thinking about, somebody asked me the question um, a couple of weeks ago about how, how do you know when somebody's spiritually mature? And I've been thinking about that. I've been thinking, at first, my mind went to this lady. I went on a mission trip when I was in college to Philadelphia, and we went to the most dangerous neighborhood in America because college students, we're really smart. We do stuff like that. And we decided it would be a good idea to go out in the middle of the night and uh, you know, evangelize people that are going into uh, the alcohol, the uh, liquor store and stand on the street corner uh, but we were there, and we met this lady uh, that we worked with, and she was in charge. She started a, um, a battered women's facility. So basically, she would rescue prostitutes off the street and bring them in and, and, and help to reconcile them and, you know, uh, clean them up and uh, help them, you know, give their life to the Lord. Remarkable lady. Uh, the most spiritual woman I've ever met in my life. Most spiritual person I've ever met. First time we met her, she prayed over us. And I'm telling you, she prayed, and the room began to shake. It was that kind of a prayer. You know people like that. And she's just, I mean, it was the most powerful prayer. And she has this horn. It was like a ram's horn. You ever seen one of these? And they said, blow it. And she would blow that horn. And if there was darkness in the room at all, it would just like take off running. You know, it's like the devil saw this woman coming, and he went the other way. You know, she was that kind of lady. She told us this story, and I have no reason but to believe her. She told us this story. She was driving down the interstate one day, and there was a huge traffic jam. It was just complete standstill on the interstate. And she's just one of those people that doesn't take no for an answer. She's like a bulldog. And so she just like, okay, I'm getting out. I'm sitting here for 30 minutes. I'm figuring out what's going on. So she walked up to the front of this thing. I would not advise this, first of all. So don't, don't try this at home. But she, she went and uh, she found that this guy had had a wreck and he died. The ambulance, the EMTs, they had given up. They, were, they weren't like trying to resuscitate him or anything. She put her hands on him. She said she felt in her spirit. The Lord was asking her to pray. She's like, she said to the Lord, this man is dead. And, she said, and, and God said, I don't care. Go pray for him. So she didn't know what to pray. And so she said, I just went and put my hands on this man. I just prayed Jesus. I just, Jesus, 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 Jesus. She said she prayed for him for like 10 minutes, and he came back to life. She said he came back to life. And so I thought, man, spiritual maturity, that's this woman, man. That's, that's the epitome of spirit, right? That's, spirit, that's spiritual maturity. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 1. Paul says, if I speak with human or angelic tongue, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so that I can move mountains and pray Jesus over somebody and they come back to life, but, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. Verse eight, love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part, 
And we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only as a reflection, as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul says, the scribe agrees, all the other things are minor in comparison to loving God and loving your neighbor. This woman was spiritually mature, not because she could pray in tongues, not because she could raise people from the dead, not because she could blow a horn and the demons take, demons take off her hand. She was spiritually mature because she loved those women on the street so much that she was willing to invest in them. That is spiritual maturity, to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And it seems so simple. It seems so mundane. But this is what the Lord is telling us. The most powerful thing you can do, the most meaningful thing you can do is to set God as your highest ambition. And in return to that, in response to that, to love the people around you the best you know how. That's how we change the world. That's what Jesus is saying. The most important, the most powerful, the most meaningful thing you can do is to love. I want you to think about this. Jesus is the most influential person who's ever lived. It's really not even close. What did he do? In love, he did nothing. Think about that. In love, they arrested him, and he did nothing. In love, they questioned him, and he did nothing. In love, they beat him, and he did nothing. In love, they whipped him, and he did nothing. In love, they grabbed him by the hands, and they led him up a hill, and he did nothing. In love, he allowed his arms to be stretched out. In love, they nailed him to this tree, and they raised him up on a cross, and he did nothing. In, in love, his lungs started filling up with water, and he was drowning. He was drowning. He could not breathe. And he did nothing. All the while, he says, I could have called down legions of angels and stopped it in a minute. But in love for you and in love to God the Father, he did nothing. The most powerful thing that has ever been done was nothing in love. Think about that. Now, what if you actively loved? It's powerful. The scribe agrees with Jesus. But look what Jesus says, verse 34. When Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. Don't miss this. He didn't say you're in the kingdom of God, which is surprising. It's surprising. Because the scribe agrees with Jesus about the character of God. There's only one God. And he calls the God by the right name. It's the God of the Bible. He agrees with Jesus on that. And he agrees that the most important thing we can do is to love that God and that God demands our everything. He agrees with Jesus on that. And he agrees that we should love our neighbors ourselves. He agrees with Jesus on the major points of theology, but he's not in the kingdom. Why? What is he missing? The greatest commandment is to love God. So the greatest sin is to break the greatest commandment. The greatest sin is to hate God. The kingdom of heaven is for people who love God. Outer darkness is for people who hate God. There isn't a middle. You either love God or you hate God. 
regardless of what you say, regardless how spiritual you think you are, regardless of how much you know the Bible. You either love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, or you hate him. We know this man doesn't truly love God and is not in the kingdom because of what he refuses to do. John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that means the promised one, the anointed one, the high and, and lifted up one, the greatest good. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Those who love God will love the Son. To reject the Son is to hate the Father. And so the scribe is standing face to face with God in the flesh, the one and only Savior of the world, the one and only worthy to open the scroll, the one and only all good, all wise, all powerful being. And yet he refuses to lay down his pride. He refuses to worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. He he refuses to prioritize God over and above everything else. And consequently, he is not in the kingdom. Here's the reality of the situation. Most Christians are like this scribe. That's the reality. You know the right answers. You know the theology. But in practice, you haven't set God as your highest ambition. You're chasing around all these other gods. And as a result, you prioritize doing the mundane things of the world over and above loving your neighbor. That's why you got no margin in your schedule. That's why you've got to say no to everybody's everything. Because in reality, it's all about serving these gods that you think are going to get you to heaven. Listen to me, friends. Every one of those gods will disappoint you. You say, how can I get there? Here's the reality. Not for one second in my life, not for one second have I loved God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, my my strength. Not for one second. I try real hard, but I can't get there. I can't. I can't. My belly gets in the way. Or that person that cuts me off in traffic gets in the way. Or my short attention span gets in the way. Or some really cool video on YouTube gets in the way. You tracking with me? I mean, I try. And I try to love my neighbors myself. But I get in the way of that. And sometimes they get in the way because they can be very annoying. Right? And so I'm trying. I'm trying my hardest. But I can't do it. So this is what I got to do. I can't put my trust in myself because that's another God. I can't put my trust in my own strength and my own wisdom and my own will because that's another God. So what I got to do, I got to come and kneel at the feet of Jesus and say, Lord, please forgive me because I can't fulfill your commandments. Will you please help me? I'm trying my hardest. But unless you help me, unless you change me, unless you empower me, I won't do it. And so that's your call today. That's your call. Lord, I want to love you with all my heart. I want to love my neighbor as myself. I can't do it if it's me. I need you. I need you. It's Jesus. That's the missing ingredient. Let's all stand together. Father, uh, we, we come just acknowledging that, man, we failed. So many different ways, Lord. And we fail daily, hourly. But thank you for the way that you love us. Even when we drive you crazy, Lord. Even when you have second thoughts that you even created us. 
even then, you choose to act in a loving way towards us. Even then, you extend your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness to us. And so, Lord, we're here today, and we acknowledge that there is no one like you, that you are the only one who is worthy to open the scroll. The things that our soul is longing for, that we chase all these other gods around hoping to find, is only found in you. And so, Lord, align our lives, our will, our mind, our thoughts. Humble us that we might surrender everything to you because you are worthy. We can't do it unless you help us. Please, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing a song of invitation. We're going to sing a song of celebration, and we're going to sing a song of repentance. So if you're here today and uh, you feel far from God, i got great news for you. The Bible says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just. He'll forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So if that's you today, I'd love for you to come talk to me. If you're carrying a burden that's too heavy, just please come and kneel at this altar. Let one of our prayer warriors pray over you. On either side of the stage, we have emblems. They represent the body and the blood of Christ. This is an opportunity, if you haven't already, to be reminded that Jesus Christ took on everything that the world could offer. Jesus Christ, on the cross, he faced down all the evil gods. And with his hands tied behind his back, he took everything that they had to throw at him, every single bit of it, all the evil, all the chaos, all the corruption, all the cruelty. He took it on himself, and it killed him. But three days later, he came up out of the grave as if to say, you have no power over me. An even more powerful example of what we saw in Egypt when the Lord faced down all the gods of Egypt, Jesus Christ faced down all the gods of the world, and they couldn't destroy him. And so as you take these emblems, be reminded today that in Jesus' name, your eternity is secure. In Jesus' name, you are saved forever. In Jesus' name, you will be empowered. In Jesus' name, you will overcome. And so take these emblems, sing this song in celebration of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Come as we sing.